Well, once again, I thought I was through with righteousness, but I'm not. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll start there this morning. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it says, For if, and this word if means since, means because by one man's offense death reigned by one, talking about spiritual death, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Verse 21 goes on to say that as sin has reigned unto death, Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the things that, one of the points that we've made uh, during this series uh, is that uh, the Bible talks about righteousness as a foundation for authority. The Amplified says of this verse, uh, verse 17, I believe it is, shall reign as a king in this life through righteousness. Now, we've talked about righteousness before, uh, defined it, I mean, and identified the words that are used uh, in the Hebrew, well, the Hebrew and the Greek, Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament, both have uh, very similar words for righteousness. And it means rightness. It means things being made right, which implies that they weren't. And, of course, the Bible tells us why they weren't. When Satan uh, convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God then that opened the door to spiritual death and everything changed everything about man's nature changed everything changed and so righteousness primarily is the return to right standing the Bible talks about we've looked at for uh, looked at it a number of times that the just shall live by faith and that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness That rightness comes only by the gift of Jesus' sacrifice. It has nothing to do with your behavior or my behavior, whether or not we do what some church may consider to be right or wrong or anything like that. It has nothing whatsoever to do with behavior. It has only to do with the position that we have because of Jesus' sacrifice. So rightness is a return to where God wanted us to be to begin with which means Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall, to exercise authority, dominion and authority in the earth because of who he is. Let me say that again. Righteousness or rightness is the condition, the position that we have with God because of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us to exercise authority in the earth, not because of what we've done or what we will do but because of who we are because of who we are now I want to look also in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 54 it's another verse of scripture a couple of verses that we've used in the, during this series verse 14 Isaiah 54 14 in righteousness shalt thou be established the word established means to stand strong in righteousness shalt thou be established Thou shalt be far from oppression, for it shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Notice what it's telling us. It's saying that our standing with God is his righteousness, not whether or not we've done what we think or somebody else thinks is good or bad or right or wrong. 
but because we've accepted Jesus and the gift that he provided for us, the gift of righteousness that he provided through his death, burial, and resurrection. But now notice this verse, notice this verse talks about oppression and terror. It says, oppression shall be far from you, for you shall not fear. So if fear is the cause of oppression, righteousness is the antidote for fear. And the same thing's true for terror. Terror shall not come near you because of righteousness, because you're established in righteousness. Folks, I think it's really important for us to see that righteousness, that which came as a free gift by Jesus' sacrifice, we just simply believed what he did, accepted what he did for us personally, and asked Jesus to come into our heart. But the Bible talks about that as being a protector or protection in this earth. He's talking about us being separated from the work of the devil, which certainly fits the bill for oppression and terror. It talks about it as a, a foundation for authority and the thing that keeps us from being afraid. Verse 17 goes further and it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Why? Well, because we're established in righteousness according to verse 14. No weapon formed against you shall prosper if you live right. Notice that's not there. No weapon formed against you shall prosper if you give enough time and money to the church. Giving time and money to the church is a good thing. Don't let me dissuade you. But I think people are doing that kind of stuff. Many people do anyway, trying to make themselves acceptable unto God. And that, that really doesn't do it. There's no need for something to make you acceptable unto God. You've already been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's as close to God as you can get. So he says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. He's talking about authority. He's talking about protection. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. Notice what he's talking about righteousness also. He's saying righteousness is not only protection from the work of the devil... But it's victory over people in this earth that will challenge your righteousness. How many churches do you know of or how many people in the body of Christ in churches all across the country, maybe all around the world, that if they ask for a show of hands, who in here is righteous? You might have a couple of hands work their way up. But that's not what the church majors on, is it? The church does not focus on or, or make as a priority our right standing with God. Rather, the church worldwide, historically, and I think the same, same thing is true in the present day, the church majors on behavior. Now, folks, right, right living, right behavior, doing good instead of doing evil, that's wonderful. But it doesn't have anything to do with righteousness. It should be our goal. Paul talks about this. He talks about presenting your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. And be not conformed into this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove or determine by experience 
What is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? That's Romans 12, 1 through 3. So Paul taught us, live right. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Don't yield to the lust of the flesh. But it has nothing to do with righteousness. That should be all of our goal. But it has nothing to do with right standing with God. It has nothing to do with God's favor being upon us. It has nothing to do with the free gift of righteousness that we received through Jesus. It just doesn't. It has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Now, is it an aid to us in exercising victory in, the, uh, in this world over the devil? Sure. Do we have authority in the earth because we live right or live according to some code of ethics or moral standard? No. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Eternally righteous by the blood of Jesus. He goes on to say, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So righteousness, the position that we have, the right standing place we have with God, is, according to the scripture, supposed to be such a part, such an important part of our daily lives and our understanding where the things of God are concerned. That it delivers us from every, even the smallest part of fear. Righteousness is what's supposed to make us fearless. Now, obviously, you know as well as I do that the church hasn't lived up to that. And uh, there are some people, individuals, that have gotten a hold of this truth from the Scripture, put it in practice in their lives, and have done, well, I don't want to say just miraculous, but have done fantastic things in the name of Jesus. And the church has looked at the people that have done that. I'm talking about people that, that have exercised dominion and authority. John Lakes is someone that comes to mind. Smith Booklesworth is somebody that comes to mind. And the church has looked at those people like they were aberrations. And they've concluded that they must have something the rest of us don't have. They must have some kind of relationship with God or some kind of power of God or, or something that the rest of us don't have. When the Bible says it's what belongs to all of us. The church, by and large, has made excuses for the things in this earth that we're subject to and the things in this earth that happen to us and have turned the scripture around and said, well, God must be different than what he says he is. God must have some kind of purpose in this. And it's not God doing anything at all. It's us not taking advantage of the protection and the authority, the foundation for authority that we've been given through righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We know those old things are spiritual things, because man doesn't change physically at the new birth. His soul doesn't change. In fact, many years after these people were born again, Paul wrote to the church in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we mentioned a minute ago. 
about not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of their minds. That means these, these folks that are born again and spirit-filled, speaking with other tongues, filled with the fullness of God through the baptism of the Spirit, still had a problem that they, had, they were responsible for correcting, and that is to renew their minds to the Word. Therefore, since by one man's sin, death entered the world by the disobedience of Adam, but Jesus restored that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That means you, the real you, the man on the inside, spiritually. All things become new. Verse 21, for he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You were made righteous when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your right standing with God was assured from that moment throughout the rest of eternity. Righteousness wasn't something that was just laid upon you. You became righteous. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 4. The last verse of Romans chapter 4 is of utmost importance for us to realize in our walk here on this earth in the exercise of our authority here on this earth Romans chapter 4 it tells us the story of Abraham's faith the principles of Abraham's faith but skip down with me to uh, verse 24 but for us also he's talking about righteousness was imputed to us also To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him, Jesus. Or really, literally there it's talking about God. On him, God, that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who, notice verse 25, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Justification is the same word as righteousness. He was raised again for our justification. There are... um, There are so many different adjectives and descriptive words in the Greek language that carry a tremendous amount of, of meaning in and of themselves. We're not used to that in the King, in the well, not just the King James, but the English language. We're not used to that. And so as a result, the King James translation gets close to what's being said, but really doesn't bring out the full import or truth of it. It says Jesus was raised for our justification. That, to me, maybe you're different. But to me, I read that for years saying Jesus was raised again so that we could be made righteous. Jesus was raised from the dead so that we could become the righteousness of God. But that's not what this verse says. Where it says for our justification, the word for there is a time-connected word. It's talking about a time an event, a happening. Let me read this to you from Young's translation. Young's literal translation. It says, who was delivered up, talking about it was Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our being declared righteous. He was raised up because we were declared righteous. He was raised up because... We were declared righteous. 
The picture I get of that is that Jesus is in the, the region of the damned. He had to pay the price for us. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's not talking about physical death because if that were true, only sinners would die and other people wouldn't. It's spiritual death. The wages of sin is spiritual death. Somebody had to pay the price for spiritual death. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Jesus had to offer his own blood as a sacrifice for us. Jesus had to die spiritually. If Jesus did not die spiritually, and I know this is a big controversial point and, and, and thing in the body of Christ. Because in some people, and I, and I understand where the other side is coming from. I really do. The thought of Jesus dying spiritually registers in many people's minds that that means he had to quit being God. Well, nobody wants to say that, do they? But rather the picture is that Jesus is there paying a price up until a certain moment when the price was paid. It literally says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was raised up again when we were justified. Jesus was raised again when we were justified. Well, if Jesus was spiritually dead, if he did die spiritually, which just means separation from God, Jesus, the Bible tells us about uh, two compartments of hell. One was called paradise or Abraham's bosom. You remember over in uh, Luke chapter 16 where it talked about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man died and Lazarus died too. And the rich man looked over into Abraham's bosom and saw Lazarus there and he wanted, uh, wanted God to do something on his behalf which wasn't possible. And so because Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. A lot of times, the, for, well, for hundreds of years, a couple of thousand years almost, the church has accepted the idea, without proper foundation, I would say, has accepted the idea that Jesus just went to Abraham's bosom. But Abraham's bosom was the place of the righteous dead. So that would mean that Jesus only paid the price for the righteous. Those to whom righteousness was given or imputed toward as a promise. But the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world. Not to redeem righteous saints. It says he died for the sins of the world. Which means everybody. Which means the ungodly. So somebody had to pay the price of the unrighteous dead. In order for salvation to be available for all. That's what Jesus did. Jesus suffered as a spiritually dead man for the purpose of redeeming mankind. So when Romans 4.24 says Jesus was delivered up, we know where he was delivered to. He was delivered to the lowest pit of hell to pay the price of the unrighteous dead. And again, let me say, I don't know any better way to say this I keep hoping that it will sink in on people if they hear it enough times. But if Jesus didn't die for the unrighteous throughout time, then if we're going to get to heaven, somebody's going to have to. Thank God he did. He was delivered up for our offenses and raised up again when we were justified or when we were made righteous. 
There came a moment in time where God said, that's it. A literal second where God said, that's it, the price is paid. Then the life of God came back upon Jesus. And as the scripture says, he became the firstborn among many brethren, meaning the church. He became the firstborn from the dead. The first begotten from the dead is the way one scripture says it. Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. Well, again, it had to be spiritual death. So that means he was born again by the same price that you and I were, which was the shedding of his blood. The shedding of Jesus' blood provided righteousness for him. The gift of righteousness for him after he had paid the price. Along with us too. Along with us too. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sorry, it's Ephesians chapter 6. Let me start in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That means effectively uh, uh, exercising authority over him, doesn't it? You couldn't stand against him unless you had authority over him. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Having your, your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Notice he talks about righteousness being a protector. And the breastplate of righteousness. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, doesn't mean more importantly than all, it means overall. Taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8. Paul uses the same illustration, but he uses different words for it. Verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, But let us who are of the day, enlightened, in other words, by the word of God, talking about Christians, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, compare those two verses where it talks about the breastplate of righteousness and the breastplate of faith and love. Did Paul forget what he called the breastplate when he wrote to the Ephesians? He uses the hope of salvation as a helmet. That's the same. Why does he call it the breastplate of righteousness writing to the Ephesians and the breastplate of faith and love when he writes to the Thessalonians? Well, remember what the commandment is. John told us what the commandment of God is. It's twofold. It's to believe on him who died for us, believe on the name of Jesus Christ and walk in love as he gave his commandment. Remember the Bible says over and over again, the just shall live by faith. The word just is the word righteous. 
The righteous shall live by faith. So the manifestation of righteousness in our lives should be twofold. Faith in Jesus and his word and walking in love toward others. That's the manifestation of righteousness in you and me. Faith and love. Faith and love. That's what pleases God. Living by faith and walking in love. And that's the only commandment there is. Now I want you to see something else. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul has just finished in the previous chapter talking about being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Verse 21 of of, uh, chapter 6 ends with. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Then he continues in verse 1. He says, we then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. This word vain is the word empty. In other words, salvation should be a living thing for us. The righteousness of God should dictate and direct our actions every day of our lives and not just some empty doctrine that we heard and not take advantage of. So he's saying that righteousness should create um, a lifestyle or a behavior for us, a behavior pattern for us. He has to be saying that. Otherwise, the grace of God, meaning everything Jesus bought and paid for with the shedding of his blood would be in vain, would be empty for us. So he's got to be talking about behavior. Workers together with God. Verse 2, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time, and behold, now is the day of salvation. He's simply saying that since righteousness is a fact, not an Old Testament imputation that we're waiting for God to fulfill in some way or another. Jesus already fulfilled it, and so it's a fact. And so since it is a fact, since it is a reality, it should affect the way that we live. Again, I'll remind you that the Old Testament said in in Isaiah 54 that we looked at, that in righteousness shall we, we be established. That looks to me like righteousness should be something that we consider, meditate on, and accept every day of our lives. Doesn't it look that way to you? So Paul goes on. Verse 3. Here's how we as workers together with him. Should operate in the grace of God. Here's how to reign in life in other words. Verse 3. Giving no offense in anything. That's walking in love. That the ministry might not. That the ministry be not blamed. But in all things approving ourselves. As ministers of God. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, and in distresses. He starts off by saying, here's how we have to maintain our right standing with God in the midst of things going against us in the world. Now, we know what that is. I mean, Paul's not contradicting what the scripture says about the just living by faith. So he's saying we should be exercising our faith and our love, walking in love, Even when bad things happen to us. Even when afflictions, test trials and afflictions come to us. In much patience. 
Do you realize that the only reason the Bible talks about the developing of patience? Or let me say this a different way. Let me start over. The only reason that the Bible would tell us that we need to develop patience is that it's a warning that things aren't going to work out as quickly as you want them to. Because if things work out as quickly as you want them to, who needs patience? Lord, I'm strong in faith, so answer my prayer right now. I wish there was a, a, a means or a method of growing in faith to such a degree that you got instant results. Some people look at Jesus in the the gospel accounts of his ministry and they say, well, Jesus got instant results and people got healed instantly in Jesus' life and in his ministry because he had something we didn't have. He was the the son of God himself. And so he had a different, different something, a different power working in him than we do. But Jesus said that we had the same power that he had. Now, there were some things that happened instantly in Jesus' ministry, and I think that's One of the things God used to draw attention to him as the fulfiller of scripture. But not everybody was healed instantly, even in Jesus' ministry. The ten lepers were healed as they went. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus had an off day? The Bible talks about the nobleman's son. Being healed from the hour that his father began to believe. But not instantly. So what does that mean? Jesus had less power working with him than others? Did it not work instantly because he needed to forgive somebody and get back in walking in love? No, that would have been sin. And he was never guilty of sin. So the reason that the Bible talks about the development of patience... It's a clue. It's a warning. It's God saying things aren't going to work out as quickly as you want them to. And folks, I can tell you from personal experience in a a wide variety of applications that patience only becomes an issue after things go longer than you expected. That's where the devil starts trying to bring in whys. Why is it taking so long? Why is this not working? That's when you have to decide who you really are. That's when you have to decide what you really believe. If we all got instant results, it'd be great. But it sure wouldn't develop patience for us. So Paul's talking about here's how we need to approve ourselves giving no offense in anything that the ministry might not be blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, test trials and hard places, in necessities, that means when it looks like you don't have enough to meet your needs, in distresses. Now, why in the world would Christians need to know about afflictions, necessities, distresses, and patience? Because you're not redeemed from any of that. You're going to have trouble. I think some people are preaching faith in such a manner that it comes out that if you've got enough faith, you'll never have any problems. 
Well, folks, if that's the case, then Paul never found that place of faith. And Paul's writing from firsthand experience about this stuff. He's saying there are going to be times where it's not going to work the way that you want it to work or as quickly as you want it to work. But here's the question. Does that change the fact that we're established in righteousness? Does it change our right standing with God? What does it mean when things go longer than you want them to go? It means things are going longer than you wanted them to go. That's what it means. It doesn't change God and it shouldn't change us. And I believe that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about maintaining the same attitude toward God, the same willingness to believe God, the same love walk when things are going a lot longer than you wanted them to, even as you would when things are going great. But he's not through talking about things. It goes further. He says, in stripes, when you're beaten, don't let that move you. Okay, I'm out. That was a real part of Paul's life. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, that means riots, in labors, in watchings and fastings. Now, the last three, labors, watching, and fasting, are spiritual, um, how do I say this, are caused by following the will of God. Paul tells us that ministry was hard work. He said he was, he said, writing to, in the first letter they wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I work harder than anybody else you know. Here he's saying that creates a hardship. But he doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. Now, folks, what I want you to see here Paul was a man, human being, just like you and me. He didn't have more of God than we have. He didn't even have more of a revelation of God than we have, assuming he told us everything he knew. If he told us everything that, that he knew about God and everything that Jesus had revealed to him, then he didn't have one thing more than what you have or that I have. Not one thing. There may have been certain elements of Equipment, what God had equipped him with to fulfill his particular ministry in the earth. But that doesn't mean he was closer to God than you. Doesn't mean that he was more righteous than you. Just means that we're called to do different things. So he continues in stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watchings and fastings by pureness, by knowledge. By long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. That means not just the appearance of love, but the real thing. Verse 7. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness. By the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. What's he saying? He's saying you're going to experience some or all of these things depending on what the particular circumstances are in your life. But he's saying in spite of all these things, 
in spite of the trouble, in spite of the devil raising up his head and trying to stir up things against you, in spite of sickness that you may be attacked with, in spite of lack of financial resources that you may experience. He's saying in all these things, we should approve ourselves as people of God. What does that mean? Stay in faith and walk in love. Stay in faith and walk in love. Finally, turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. You know what, a, what it means when a pastor says, finally, don't you? Not a thing in the world. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Before we read, I want you to consider something with me. As I said before, Paul was just a man. And Paul received a lot of revelation from Jesus about who we are in Christ and what was done for us. He's the one that tells us about Jesus being made sin for us. Peter's letters don't tell us that. John's letters to the church don't tell us that. Peter, um, uh, Paul, received some tremendous revelation that makes sense and fits with what the other guys told us. But if all we had was what the other guys said instead of what Paul said, we'd be missing out on a whole lot because of the things that we didn't know. But how did Paul find this stuff out? Well, he was caught up into the third heaven, Pastor Mike. He he saw and heard things that were unlawful to to utter, meaning things that he couldn't express and explain. Well, then that wasn't stuff that he's talking about in the letters that he wrote to us. How did he find this stuff out? How did Paul find out that the just living by faith doesn't mean instant results? How did Paul find out that we're going to need to develop patience? There's only one way you can find that out, folks, and that is by being in situations where you have to develop patience or die. So how did Paul come to the place where he was so assured of who we are and what belongs to us because of what Jesus did on the cross? How did he come to that place? Well, the answer is easy, but not one we usually associate with Paul. Paul learned these truths because he experienced them. He lived through them. And he's simply telling us what we might have to live through too. Verse 31, he said, what shall we say then to these things? Since God is for us, who can be against us? How'd Paul learn that? By everybody being against him. He found out that God was for him and that put him over. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul's saying no matter what you experience, there's victory ahead if you stay in faith and walk in love. Which is the manifestation of righteousness in your life. That's it. There's victory available for us all. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him, with Jesus, who's already been given, also freely give us all things? What does all things mean to you? Would it mean anything that you needed? Wouldn't it also mean anything that you desired for the sake of the gospel? He goes on further in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. The word justifieth is the word righteousness. 
Who can lay anything to our charge? God's the one that made us righteous. Now consider that as if it's a real question. Who can lay anything to our charge? God has made us righteous. Well, the devil certainly wants to. The devil brings charges against you in your own mind. He'll bring up your past, which may just be this morning. But he'll bring up things that discount or discredit the generally accepted idea of righteousness, which is behavior. But Paul's asking a real question. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God's the one that made you righteous. I would suggest to you folks that if we came to the place where we really, 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 really understood righteousness and stood firm in what it means for us and the change that it created in us, we'd have a lot less trouble with the devil in our thought lives. And if we had a lot less trouble with the devil because we knew that we were righteous and knew what that meant, wouldn't that keep us from being afraid? Well, gee, that sounds like Isaiah 54, verse 14. In righteousness you'll be established. And you'll be far from oppression because you don't fear. And from terror because it won't come near you. Paul goes on, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Now, I believe he's talking specifically about the devil. Certainly the devil uses people. But here's another real life question. Who is he that condemns you? The devil? And people that will yield to his influence? And it seems to me that so much of the church, so many Christians, well-meaning, sincere Christians, people that cry their hearts out to God and tell him how much they love him and want to do right. It seems to me that too many Christians are accepting the condemnation of the devil because the devil's talking about facts. He talks about failures of the flesh. But I think one of the points that Paul is making here is why should we listen to him? Who is he? You can't get any more spiritually dead than the devil. And the Bible gives us some real important information about the devil's future. The only thing waiting for him is the lake of fire. Now, you know, in court cases... At least things we see on TV. If somebody stands up in a courtroom and testifies, gives testimony as a witness, the other side's always trying to discredit the witness. Right? They oftentimes point out situations where they lied in the past or lived some kind of life or operated in some kind of way that they should not be credible, should not be given any credibility. Well, folks, if that does not fit the the exact description of the devil, I don't know what does. 
Why should you listen to what he says? He doesn't know God. He never will know God. One of the things that's always amused me is because uh, it's so common for unsaved people to tell the Christians what they should be doing. There's people in families, in all kinds of situations that have the idea and are vocal about it. Here's what the church ought to be doing. Here's what Christians, the ones that say they love God, here's what they should be doing. And let me ask you this. What in the world does an unsaved person know about what a Christian ought to do? Yet that's who we're being influenced by. Or at least who's trying to influence, influence us. Why should we listen to anything the devil has to say? Particularly about us. See, he wants to put himself off like he knows you. Does he really? Everything I've ever done wrong that I knew about it, my heart condemned me for it. My conscience bothered me. My conscience tried to tell me to get back on track. The devil didn't know anything about me. He didn't know anything about you. He may know your past history, but that doesn't mean that's who you are now. Why should he gain any credible influence in your life in any way whatsoever? Yeah, well, Pastor Mike, he's there all the time. He's always speaking to our minds. Well, that's true for a lot of people. But I found that if you just start reminding him of his future, he doesn't stick around very long. And that is answering him with the word. Next time the devil starts telling you what a lousy person you are, why don't you say something to the effect of, you know, Mr. Devil, I was reading in the word the other day about what's coming up for you. And folks, it dawned on me not too long ago how important an issue that is with the devil and his angels. Because in several cases, when Jesus appeared to someone that was demon-possessed, they cried out and they said, have you come to torment us before the time? Look what's first and foremost on their mind. Their time's coming. They wanted to delay that time as much as possible. And so they cried out to Jesus. The evil spirits in these people cried out to Jesus and said, let us alone. We haven't done anything. It's not time yet. And Jesus said, shut up and come out. And they did. That is the devil's future. Your future, on the other hand, is to sit in in the uh, presence of God, to sit or stand in the presence of God, enjoying a quality of life and riches and glory that the Bible says it will take God ages to show you. Well, let me see if I can finish this. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that it is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So who is it that condemns? Jesus has already made the, paid the price so that, you were, would, so that you could be and were made righteous. 
So why listen to somebody that condemns you? See, the Bible says you're accepted by God in Christ already. There's nothing you can do or nothing you need to do to make that a reality. It is a reality whether you accept it or not. Now, Jesus didn't accept you in him. Or God the Father accepts you in him with some kind of misguided notion that you'd never fall. Or ever fail. Or ever experience something that's just too great. I'm sorry, you were in. I was willing to let you in, but not now. So I believe these are real life questions that Paul's asking. And he, there's a point to this. So he says, who is he condem- that condemns? Jesus has already been sacrificed and raised again for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, Paul makes a list of things that he's encountered. And I think all these things that he's encountered brings him to the place that he identifies in a few verses down in this reading. He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, is that big enough? How about distress? How about persecution? He's got some experience with that. How about famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Are any of those things great enough to separate you from the love of God? Now, some of those things may be great enough to separate some Christians from their faith. But if there's a break, it's not on God's end. If there's a break in fellowship, it's not on God's end. Verse 36 says, it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why? Because you've been made righteous. Because you've got the word of God that covers and declares victory in every one of these situations and any other situation that you could encounter in your life. You have been made righteous. Then these things that he mentions, are they great enough? Or are they any kind of indication that God's not on our side? Paul says no. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, said no. The Holy Ghost said through Paul, no. Yeah, but I've been in, in this hard place for such a long time. You know, Pastor Mike, I'm just getting tired. Well, don't give up. There's plenty of time to rest in heaven. Hold on to your faith here. The devil will tell you that there's something wrong with you. The only reason it's going as long as it is or is as bad as it is is because you've done something wrong. You better start searching and examining yourself. But the Bible doesn't say to examine yourself when you're in a hard place. It says to hold fast to the word. See, I'm not interested in examining myself to see if I'm doing something wrong. I'm smart enough to know that the Holy Spirit is here to guide me into all truth, the reality of truth in my situation, so that if I am doing something wrong, he's going to show me, and I don't even have to look for it. 
Well, Pastor Mike, the, the Lord just hasn't shown me anything. Guess what that means? There isn't anything. Because if there was and he didn't show you, he'd be unfaithful. That would make him a liar. So if there's not anything you know of to correct, there's not anything to correct. So what do these hard places and what do these afflictions and what do these persecutions, what do these attacks of the enemy mean? It means you're being attacked by the enemy. What's the answer? Jesus said the answer was the word. So Paul says, what about these things? Are these things enough to separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Notice the last two verses, verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded. I am persuaded. The word persuaded means convinced. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice the word persuaded. Paul, how did you become persuaded about that? By living through everything on the list. By living through everything on the list. The list that Paul makes and gives to us uh, when he wrote to the Corinthians and he talked about uh, the things he's experienced as a minister. He concludes by talking about the, the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan that was given to him to keep him from being exalted because of the revelations and the visions that he had of Jesus. All this stuff's of the devil. The church has tried to, some parts of the church have tried to, to say that this was Paul's declaration that sickness was given to him. That he operated in some kind of sickness, dreaded eye disease, or whatever the case is. But he says it was the messenger of Satan. He identifies it as persecution. And for that, he besought the Lord three times. Lord, deliver me from this. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Some of the church have taken that and twisted it around and said that Jesus told Paul, no, I want you to be sick. But grace is never the answer for sickness. Grace is a spiritual commodity, not a physical one. Nowhere in the Bible does grace ever have any relationship in any way to physical attributes or sickness or disease or healing or anything else. Healing is a benefit of the work that Jesus did. So Paul, in talking about all the things, the things that he experienced, the peril, perils in the wilderness, perils in the city, perils of false brethren, beatings, stonings and everything else on the list paul makes these lists to let us know that none of the things on the list were strong enough to keep him from from going on with god when he makes these lists he's saying i'm persuaded i know for certain that these things won't keep you away from god because they haven't stopped me that's what being persuaded means he says i'm persuaded i know for a fact through my life experience that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what is he talking about being separated from the love of God? Well he starts off earlier 
talking about God being for us. So when he speaks of being separated from the love of God, another way to say that could be none of these things could take away our righteousness. None of these things could take away God's desire and willingness to show himself strong on our behalf because our righteousness is of him. None of these things on this list or any other list that Paul created are enough to keep us from walking in faith if we choose to hold fast to the truth. None of these things are strong enough to keep us from walking in the love of God if we hold fast to what the Bible says. None of these things are enough to stop me, Paul says. And they shouldn't stop you either. God made Jesus to be sin for us. Sin nature. Spiritually dead, literally. Who knew no sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the position you have. You are able to stand before God without any sense of shame or condemnation or any such thing. Because none of those things affect your right standing with him. Things have been made right between you and him. So we have two choices. We can either look at our experience, remember our past failures, and say, well, just must be something about that that I don't understand. So I'm just going to try to tough it, that, tough it out, tough through it until Jesus comes. Or... You can be like the Bible instructs us to be, to come boldly before the throne of God to obtain help and mercy. You can stand before God saying, Father, I am righteous because of you. Not because of anything that I've done, but because you made me that way through the blood of Jesus. And as such, because I have right standing with you, no sense of condemnation or guilt, Now, the devil may still be bringing those pictures to your mind, but I refuse to give in to them. That's not who I am. That may be who I was. That may be what I've done, but that's not who I am. Therefore, I come boldly before you, Father, looking for help. I come boldly before you looking for the power in the name of Jesus to set me free and deliver me and make me a conqueror and all these things and even more things that the devil could throw at me. Paul concludes... Very simply this. I'm not going to quit because of who I am. I'm not going to quit because Jesus has made me righteous. I'm not going to quit because I realize all this stuff is just chatter. Just noise coming at me from the world. But I've been made the righteousness of God in him. And that rightness, that being made right with God protects me. It may not protect you from every experience didn't Paul he still had these experiences but they couldn't stop him they couldn't take his life he was delivered from every one of the things that he identifies on the list I guess we could say that in Paul's case at least in righteousness he was established That's the way I want to live. Don't you? I don't want to just take up space. I want to live boldly. 
I want to see the power of God. I want to see God do what he said that he'd do in his word. Problem can't be on his end. There isn't any problem on his end. So whatever we need to know, whatever we need to grow into, whatever we need to discover, I'm determined to do it. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for all that you've done for us through the precious sacrifice that Jesus our Lord made for us. We thank you that your word is true, Father. We thank you that everything that you've ever spoken to us, whether in the written word or things you've spoken to our hearts, you will honor, you will watch over, you will bring to pass in Jesus' name. We thank you that we are who you say we are, Father. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are able to stand before you without a sense of guilt or shame because there is no sin in us or of us. No matter what our bodies have done, you've made our spirits new, perfect, pure, and holy. So we thank you, Father, for living big in us by the Holy Ghost. We thank you for giving us the kind of boldness that the early church prayed for. They prayed, Lord, grant unto your servants boldness that we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want. Holy Spirit, you're our guide. You'll guide us into all truth. You'll guide us into all reality. Guide us into God's perfect plan for each and every one of us, whatever it might be, so that we would know what we're called unto so that we would know what your plans and purposes are for us in our lives so that we would know who we are in him father we yield ourselves to you we'll not allow ourselves to be condemned because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Satan we serve notice on you your times of jerking us around is over. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Commissioned by our Lord Jesus to do the same works that he did in the earth. And even greater works, he said, would we do. Because he went to the Father. Lord, give us opportunities to be a help and a blessing to others. Bring people across our path. That we can tell just how good you are. So that we can bring them into the kingdom of God. Bring them into a greater knowledge of you and your word. And be a blessing to them in any and every way possible. Lord let it be said of us as it was said of the early church. Those that have turned the world upside down have come here too. We thank you Father that we're equipped with everything that we'll ever need by the Holy Ghost who resides in us, who lives in us. We pray that he would live big in us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. He is good, isn't he? Lord, we worship you. We magnify you. We bless your holy name. We thank you, Father, that your word is true and that you're watching over it to perform it in our lives. 
We thank you, Father, for showing us who we are and what we have. Reveal to us the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 Folks, you are not who the devil tells you you are. What does he know about it anyway? But you are not who he says you are. But you are everything that God's word says you are. We need to retrain ourselves to think in line with the word. So that we can live up to who we are. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. And I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.